0: God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please take a seat. One of the gifts of the lectionary, the three-year Sunday cycle of scheduled readings, is that we read and we pray and we meditate on scriptures that may get less airtime than we'd otherwise choose. Mother Kimberly noted something similar last week in her passage. I wonder how frequently we might choose our gospel passage from today if it were not scheduled. Some mornings the gospel reading gets a more or less rousing praise to you, Lord Christ, at the end of the reading. We affirm it, But we also note in our bodies and in our brains, with our volume, our very real discomfort with the words of Jesus. Hades, torment, and a reversal that makes it look like if you have money, you are internally condemned. And if you are discarded by society, you win a seat with the patriarchs. Is that what Jesus is saying here? I want to invite you to take a look at the cartoon that should come up behind me. It is a cartoon of reunion of a man and his dog in a cloud heaven with a haloed man at a podium saying, So you're little Bobby. Well, Rex here has been going on and on about you for the last 50 years. (laughs) If this cartoon appeared in the Austin American Statesman, We wouldn't assume that the editorial staff believes anything in particular about life after death. We wouldn't assume they believe that there is a place in the sky where a registrar stands post. The comic uses a form, but the comic exists to honor the love of a dog. In early Jewish tradition and in the Middle East, there have long been what scholar Kenneth Bailey calls pearly gates stories. Moses might be a main character and they frequently have some kind of humorous slant. As Jesus tells this story today, it's unlikely his primary purpose is to teach us about the details of life after death or the mechanics of God's judgment. Like the comic strip, the parables that peek beyond the grave is the pearly gates backdrop to reveal something for people deciding in the here and now how they should live. So what is Jesus revealing? To glean from his parable, we'll zoom in a bit on three people—the rich man, Lazarus, and finally Jesus, our storyteller. First, the rich man. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. The humor and tragedy of the parable begin immediately. The picture that is painted here is comically over the top. Purple clothing was like red carpet clothing, meant to signal your incredibly high status. You would never wear purple clothing every day. Every day for this man, though, is a red carpet day. The fine linen mentioned here communicates that he wears the finest of undergarments. (laughs) Every day is a Dior day, haute couture, top to bottom. Not only that, the phrase lived in luxury is more literally translated as feasted sumptuously. He hosts some kind of feast, lavish eating, daily. Do we at all think he's the one preparing these feasts? Not a chance. (laughs) The implication is that he has people serving him seven days a week. No Sabbath for them. We start to see the tragedy of the way the rich man regards others. The rich man's gated life allows him to ignore Lazarus and deny his needs in direct conflict with the many texts of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, as Abraham puts it, who say to extend care, to give to those in need. At the rich man's death, his high social status is again confirmed by his receiving of a burial. Then the fun starts, the conversation between the rich man and Abraham. While he uses words we might associate with repentance, have pity on me, notice that he doesn't actually change his tune. Even in torment, he doesn't talk to Lazarus. The words, I'm sorry, never leave his mouth. In fact, the first thing he has the audacity to ask for is for Lazarus to be his errand boy, to receive, to ease his suffering. He calls Abraham, father, still so very aware of his prior status and life, even when the present circumstances should tell him his heritage and wealth were not important here. Okay, if you won't send Lazarus to do that, goes the second request, then send Lazarus, still the errand boy, to go save my same status family members. Still not a lot of awareness. The third and final word from the rich man begins with, no, Father Abraham. Like, let me tell you from my station that you, Abraham, are wrong. (laughs) And probably ends with the least self-aware statement of all. If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. The deceased Lazarus, the deceased Abraham are in view of this rich man. And even though he is in torment, He himself has not repented. If you're at all having trouble emotionally connecting with the scene, I'm gonna set a very different, very real situation that I am positive most of us have been in. Picture a heavily trafficked road. The road has three lanes, two of which, upon approaching the freeway, go straight. The right lane is right turn only. Multiple signs stretch far back down the road and read, right lane must turn right. If you're a seasoned driver and knowledgeable in the ways of fellow travelers, you know what happens. The straight lanes are backed up and inevitably a driver takes the right lane and tries to cut back in at the last second. It is frequently met with a chorus of honking horns. What are the feelings that come up when that happens? Incredulity? Anger? Those are the top of my list. (laughs) In our passage, we're given a caricature of a man who is in the fanciest car, driving in the right-turn-only lane, who sees every sign and then tries and fails to cut a head of someone who has borne in patience the weight. This is not the person who, upon realizing their mistake, repents, signals to get over early, does the contrite wave? You know, the head down, the hand up, right? They don't mouth the, like, I'm sorry. They try to get in. This is not someone who asks for or or receives mercy. This is someone who themselves is merciless and presumptuous. (laughs) He believes in his priority because of his wealth and status. Time and time again in the scriptures and manifested in the life of Jesus, repentance is encouraged and powerfully honored, disproportionately so. The apostle Peter named God's intentions so very well when he wrote, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As you listen this morning for the voice of the Holy Spirit, in this moment, are there places he might be telling you, you're in a right-turn-only lane. Are there any places where he might be inviting repentance, maybe even particularly in your relationships with those around you or those just outside of your gate? Maybe it's the coworker who is relationally isolated while you are relationally wealthy. The neighbor who is experiencing a spiritual poverty who is far from God, but for whom we pass by to avoid an awkward interaction. The brother or sister who's in financial need, but we're used to living as if we're money blind, primarily associating with people of the same financial status. I want to invite us to hold on to that question to hold a posture of listening. Hold that space for the Lord to speak as we continue in our passage and in our worship this morning. I also want to say a quick pastoral word on that. Some of us will rush to think, oh no, what have I done? Who have I disappointed? Hold the space of listening. (laughs) I want to direct us. God has a good word for you. And with that question open to the Lord, let's turn and take a look at Lazarus. One of the first things we might notice about Lazarus is that he has a name. This is the only named person in the parables of Jesus. There are judges, sons, managers, workers, plenty of different types of people in Jesus' parables, but none of them have a name. None, that is, except for Lazarus. We'll come back to that in a bit. While the details of the rich man mingle humor and anger, the treasures found in Lazarus evoke both sadness and beauty. There is deep sadness, and there are aspects that are hard to take in. Unable to provide for himself, begging, covered in sores, Persistent, unmet hunger. That word longing in verse 21 implies a desire that will go unfulfilled. Every day he hears the feasting, the celebrating at the rich man's home. Every day he experiences the man's lack of pity, lack of acknowledgement as a fellow human. The physical and psychological toll of Lazarus' daily life heartbreaking. And yet there are moments where we see care for Lazarus, if in unconventional ways. There are people that, though they cannot provide for Lazarus, lay him out daily by the gate of the one who could help. They lay him out and they come and collect him. And then they lay him out again and collect him again day in and day out. In this way, they participate in his begging, in his suffering, in his poverty. And T. Wright, among many others, likes to say, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. Then there are the dogs. It's easy to read this and think that the dogs are adding insult to injury. But the word translated even in our text, even the dogs came and licked his sores, is not a word of amplification or of adding on. It's actually a word of contrast. But the dogs came and licked his sores. But the dogs tended to his needs. They did not gnaw or snap. They are not using Lazarus to meet their needs. Rather, they showed affection. They brought what care and healing they could to the equation. Death without a burial was seen as a sign of the judgment of God. And yet, Lazarus, here with no burial to speak of, is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Can you see the beauty, the care, even in the midst of tragedy. Can you see the tenderness that persists in the midst of heartache? I would argue that it's Lazarus's ability to recognize and receive the graces, however much we might turn up our noses at them, that forms the character we see here. You might be thinking, what character? (laughs) He doesn't do anything in this parable, but that, in itself, is telling. He is hungry and dependent, with his community unable to provide for all of his needs, and yet he doesn't lash out. His wounds are tended by the scavengers and the despised dogs of that age, yet he treats them in such a way that they would be inclined to express affection. He remains silent as the rich man calling from Hades still treats him disrespectfully. My father-in-law likes to say, beware the wrath of a patient man. That was kind of his little thing. And so kind of there's some sense of like, finally in this place, Lazarus could explode, right? He's been patient long enough. I'm not taking it anymore. Are you kidding me? Me come and dip my finger and ease your suffering? But he doesn't. The rich man is comically opulent in the story, and Lazarus is magnificently gentle. This is a character who has entrusted themselves and others to God. And it's crucial that you see the graces, that you see the provision of God in the formation of Lazarus in Christlikeness, because you need to be able to see these things in your own life. I need to be able to see them in my life. Lazarus' name in Hebrew means the one whom God helps. If you're not able to see Lazarus in this light, the name is nothing but cruel. The lives of the apostles, martyrs, and poor who put their ultimate trust in God are nothing but cruel. Lazarus did receive bad things. Even Abraham in our parable says so. But he was not abandoned by God. And if we're not able to see the help of God, we'll be tempted to invest more and more in our gates and in our feasting and in our linens. Because maybe the help of a crucified God is not the kind of help we're looking for. Maybe we're less interested in the God of the beggar than in the God of the rich man. And as Jesus said earlier in this chapter, no one can serve two masters. But friends, the help of God is the only help that matters. This is the only help that saves, that does what we cannot do, in a dehumanizing world, this is this the only help that can make us, make someone in Lazarus's position, more fully human? It is the only help that can take death, not just reject death, not just outrun death, but receive it and overpower it and make it into unending life. Earlier, I asked us to hold open that question of repentance. I want to add to that. The most trustworthy form of repentance is one that is steeped in the kindness of God toward you and toward your neighbor. I'm going to say that again. The most trustworthy form of repentance is one that is steeped in the kindness of God toward you and toward your neighbor. We are less likely to ignore someone when we know we have not been ignored by God. Or put inversely, we are empowered to be present to someone to care when we connect with God's presence and care of us. As you hold before him this question of repentance, also hold before him an attentiveness to his kindness toward you. In what ways Have you received the care of God? In what ways is the Holy Spirit, maybe even now, highlighting some care you've received, but maybe have overlooked in the midst of your other hungers? Invite the Spirit to reveal God's provision for you, both His present provision and His ultimate provision. As we make our final turn towards Jesus, our storyteller, I want us to consider two things. One, okay, what is he actually saying? (laughs) If we bring the pieces together, what is at least in part some of this message? There are more treasures than we have time to explore here, but what is at least some part of that? And then what does this tell us about Jesus? What does this tell us about him? There's a costume that I don't think I've ever seen in person, but I've heard about numerous times in popular media, and that is the two-person horse. It's that one where a single costume is put on by two people. One is the head, and their legs are the front two legs of the horse, and the other person is the tail end, with their legs serving as the back of the horse. Almost always in popular media, there's some kind of joke about like, I don't want to put it on again. Don't make me be the tail. You know, nobody wants to be the tail end of that costume. And maybe that's why I've never seen it in real life, is that nobody does that. In Jesus's parable, the lives of the rich man and Lazarus are connected in this two-person drama. The rich man is clearly the head while Lazarus lives in the tail end of the story. But Jesus draws a different picture. Can we see the next slide? (laughs) You may have seen this image before. There's no denying Lazarus got to be the front, but ultimately it was a crude front, a front that is with all love and affection to the kiddo who drew it, so disfigured that it'd be hard to call it a horse. (laughs) And again, no denying, Lazarus was in the back. But it turned out to be the honorable part, the beautiful part of the story. Jesus is reminding the people in his midst, particularly those who have a love of money or status, that our position in life, our wealth, can blind us to reality. I read an article recently where a young man said, between social media and porn and podcasts and video games, you can live a low-quality simulation of what a fulfilling life would be. You can get social interaction from social media, the feeling of problem-solving or being productive from video games, and sexual fulfillment from porn. A low-quality simulation of what a fulfilling life would be. Isn't that a little bit like our picture here? Our parable? That wealth, amongst other things at our disposal, can lead us into a low-quality simulation of a fulfilling life. Wealth isn't inherently bad, but it can be dangerous, like the tile around a swimming pool. Take care. Jesus, our storyteller, is lovingly, comically, achingly, saying to those who would hear, don't be fooled. Wait the kindness of God. Wait a repentant heart and life as far more valuable than wealth and status, as far more valuable than our ability to insulate from the needs of others, as far more valuable than having our hunger for honor and pleasure satisfied. The teller of the story is not one who has abandoned people in their ignorance or in their love of money. He aims not to leave them, as the quote on our bulletin reads, in the prison of their own wealth. The teller of this story is someone who is drawn near and is showing them the way out. Jesus means to set us free, to heal us from that which would lead us into the ways of torment. Again, we ask and listen. Where might the Spirit be revealing God's presence, God's kindness? Where might he be inviting repentance, inviting us to draw near to those in need? May we, Church of the Cross, be a people who listen when the Spirit speaks. May we be a people who are disillusioned with wealth and status and have eagle's eyes and servant's hands when it comes to our neighbors. May we be a people who fully entrust ourselves to God, the one who helps us. Amen.